are in a series called David and King Jesus, where we are looking at the life of King David, the second king of Israel, God's chosen king, right after King Saul. Yeah, piece of work, right? We're going to see more on Saul later. But David is this towering figure. I think he's mentioned more than anyone else in the Bible besides Jesus. Uh, He's this towering, complicated character, and he is meant to point us forward to the son of David, the son of God, King Jesus. He points forward to King Jesus in both his faithfulness, which we are to emulate, and his sins, which we are not to emulate, okay? Uh, And Heath has been very, very clear through two weeks in this series that the point is not be like David, okay? That's not not the point, right? The world does not need more chronic womanizers, okay? We just, we don't, right? Uh, The world does not need more murder, okay? And David had some of those things on his resume. I'm not up here trying to cancel David, okay? Uh, But yeah, that's not the point. The point is not to be like David. The world doesn't need more men on their deathbed with a trail of broken and rebellious womanizer sons, okay? The world does not need more Davids. However, we're not spending the majority of our time with David this morning. Uh, Today is Jonathan. We're going to look at Jonathan, and Jonathan is the son of King Saul. And I don't know about you, but I, for some reason, I don't know why, just always thought of Jonathan as like this feisty little sidekick of King David. Not the case. Heath pointed out to me that Jonathan would have been at least 20 years older than David, which really started to give me a new lens on the story. Um, And so the point this morning is be like Jonathan. The world absolutely needs more Jonathans. We're going to see how Jonathan's life points forward to Jesus as well. But we absolutely want to be like Jonathan, the loyal friend and servant of the true king. Jonathan takes his place alongside Ruth and Daniel and Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and and Mary, who we see very little about their shortcomings. Scripture puts them forward as imitate their faith as they imitated Jesus Christ. Imitate their faith. So let's, let's meet Jonathan. We meet Jonathan first in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. If you want to turn there, uh, it'll be up on the screen. We're going to be in verses 3 and 4 just to start out with. So 1 Samuel 13, verses 3 and 4. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. So there's a war going on. Now, who defeated the garrison of the Philistines? Jonathan. Jonathan defeated the Philistines, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Who defeated the Philistines? Jonathan. Who does everyone think defeated the Philistines? 
Saul, his dad. So we don't learn a whole lot about Jonathan here, but we learn a whole lot about his dad, okay? Saul is the kind of man who has a really hard time sharing credit, okay? He literally toots his own horn, okay? He blows the trumpet tooting his own horn, okay? Saul is the kind of man who doesn't like to share glory, have you ever known someone like that? Maybe it's your boss or something right now. It's just, it's awful. It's miserable. And the flip side of this is that Paul, uh, Saul, I keep doing that, Saul, okay, Saul not only, you know, takes the credit, but he shifts the blame. So anything goes right, Saul takes the credit. Anything goes wrong, Saul shifts the blame. Like later in this very same chapter, this is still very early in Saul's career, Saul gets scared and he gets impatient. And so he offers this burnt offering to sort of manipulate God, right? And Samuel, the prophet, shows up. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing offering this offering that's not mandated? And he's like, uh, well, I mean, you were late you know, and he's like, the army was scary, and, you know, everyone was scattering. What was I supposed to do? Obey, you know, and Samuel is just like, dude, it's over for you. It's over for you. It's not going to be your ancestor sitting on the throne. Your kingdom is done. Your kingdom is done. Your line is over. It's not going to be you. We don't need more souls, (laughs) We don't need more of yous, but we do need more Jonathan. So let's, let's look at Jonathan again, this time chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Uh, so Saul is being passive again. It says he's sitting under a pomegranate tree. And uh, verse 6 says this, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, so imagine a little teenager, come on. Let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, both heart and soul. So Saul sitting under the the pomegranate tree, um, exhibiting what Brant Hansen calls toxic passivity. Okay, not toxic masculinity, something much more common, toxic passivity. Saul is a fool, okay? When action is called for, Saul is passive. When patience is called for, Saul is rash. But the apple falls very far from the tree. Jonathan, over and over again, he's a man of faith. He's a man of action. He's a man of wisdom. He's a man of great courage. And so just him and his, his little teenage armor bearer, they kill 20 Philistines as they're crawling up to higher ground. And then this, this panic just spreads through the camp. And then even the Lord gets involved and he sends an earthquake. And it's just full, full panic. But then get this. It's just like out of nowhere. Saul's sitting there and he goes, verse 24, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So if any of my soldiers eat food before we win, they should be killed. Curse be on them. Nobody eats until I win. Not a very good shepherd, okay? Not too good at inspiring the troops. So while passive Saul sitting over here making up stupid self-serving rules, Jonathan's so busy like doing the Lord's work, 
claiming enemy ground that he doesn't even hear the stupid rule, okay? He doesn't even hear this proclamation happen. So, you know, he's walking along and the, the land's doing what the land does. It's producing honey and he dips his staff in some honey and he eats a little bit and it says his eyes grow bright and he gets the strength for the battle. Long story short, Saul finds out and he tries to have Jonathan killed. He tries to have Jonathan killed just to like preserve his own honor. And Jonathan, you know, he's a true man of honor and he consents to this, but the army does not. Saul's own army steps up and intercedes for Jonathan and saves Jonathan's life. So already very early in Saul's career, the Lord is clearly with Jonathan, his son, and Saul's own army is with Jonathan, his son. It kind of seems like Jonathan is next, right? He's the crown prince. So the Lord is with Jonathan, and that brings us up to date where Heath left us off last week, um, there's a stalemate in the war, right, between the Philistines and the Israelites. And, you know, out comes the starting center, standing at nine foot nine for the Philistine army, okay, Goliath, the giant, and no one wants to fight him. Everyone's shaking in their boots, sandals, whatever they wore back then. And it's kind of weird, like, no, Jonathan is nowhere in this story, which Jonathan has already shown, he, he's cut from the cloth of David. Like, he is not afraid. He just killed 20 Philistines. So it, it should spark our curiosity. Where is Jonathan? Maybe he's scared. Maybe he's off fighting another battle. We're, we're not told. But I think given where the rest of the story goes, it's very likely that the Lord instructed Jonathan to watch, to wait, and to see, to be patient. Because Jonathan knows the kingdom was already taken from his dad. But Jonathan, like John the Baptist, he knows who he is not. He knows who he is and he knows who he is not. So it's, I believe that the Lord said to Jonathan, wait and see. Don't put yourself forward. Don't assume you're next. Watch. Watch what I'm going to do. And here comes this little teenage delivery boy, David, right? Smelling like sheep. Kills Goliath in about two seconds. Cuts off his head and brings it to Saul. Let's pick up in chapter 17, verse 55. 17, 55, and we'll read through the first five verses of chapter 18. This is the, the heart of our texts we're looking at today. It's so good. 17:55. As soon as Saul saw, hold on to that word, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king. I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the head of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. He loved him as himself. He sees David holding the head of Goliath and he's like, I love you. <laughs> oh man, like this dude is after my own heart. Verse 2. And Saul took him that day, took him that day, and would not let him return to his father's house. 
Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. He pledged loyalty to David because he loved him as his own soul. And then Jonathan, Jonathan stripped himself, this is so significant, of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt, even his weapons. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So let's, let's just settle in here for a minute. Let's start with Saul. Saul saw David. Saul saw David. And he didn't want to know David, but he wanted to know about David, right? Inquire after him. Whose son is he? And then once he knew what he felt he needed to know, he took David. There's layers to this. First of all, this is exactly what the prophet Samuel said was going to happen. You remember the king, uh, the, the people were begging for a king. And Samuel's like, you do realize you already have a king, the creator of the universe, okay? Like God has promised to be your king and protect you. You, you really want a king? And they're like, yeah, we really want a king. So... 1 Samuel 8, 11. Samuel's like, you, do you know how kings protect you? He says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Like, you do realize that kings protect you by making your sons cannon fodder? Do you realize that's how kings protect you? So Saul takes David sees David and takes David and sets him over the men of war. Saul only sees David insofar as David is useful to him. You see that? Insofar as he's useful to him in the kingdom that he's desperately trying to hold on to. Right? Samuel's already said, your kingdom will be taken from you. And he sees David, maybe David can help me hold on to my kingdom. So, there's more here though. Uh, I'm thankful to the Bible project here. Just so good. So good. And they helped me to pay attention to these words saw and took repeatedly throughout the Bible. The first time we see them, Genesis 3, 5 through 6. Genesis 3, 5 through 6. This is the serpent talking to Eve in the garden. For God knows that when you eat of this tree, of tree of knowledge, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And you're like, maybe that's just a coincidence. There's many more of these, but watch this one just for fun. 2 Samuel 11, 2 and 3. This is way in the future. David is older now. He is king. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, his couch, his army's out to battle, he's taking a nap, and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a beautiful woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. See that language? Same exact language. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elion, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. David has become Saul. You see that? 
David has become Saul. This is the fall of David from the roof of his palace. He has become a passive fool, and others have become mere tools for him. His army a tool for his glory. Bathsheba a tool for his pleasure. Uriah a tool for his secrets. Ugh. Fortunately, David does repent unlike Saul. But let's, let's contrast these two kings now with Prince Jonathan. Jonathan loved David immediately. Remember in verse 1? He loved David immediately. Interestingly, the first person we're told who loves David is King Saul. That's the first one we're told who loves David. But then everyone else starts to love David, and he can't handle that, right? His love is a possessive love. But with Jonathan, it's the exact opposite. With Jonathan, he loves David as himself, as his own soul. He makes a covenant with him, which means he pledges his loyalty to him. And then notice the language, he strips himself. He strips himself. Like, I can't help but think of Jesus stripping himself and putting the towel around his waist, right? He strips himself and gives, not takes, but gives his robe, which symbolizes the kingdom, his armor, his protection, and even his weapons and his belt. He empowers David. He gives everything to David because he loves him as himself. Did you know, like, to truly empower another person, to truly invest in another person, to truly love, help, disciple another person involves vulnerability. Involves vulnerability. We love the myth especially in America, and the American church, that we can help someone without any cost to ourselves, really, without any vulnerability. I, I, Jonathan literally shares his stuff with David, right? He shares his stuff with David. He gives David the power to hurt him. He is vulnerable with him. So let's, let's turn our eyes now to Jesus. This is Philippians 2, 3 through 8, best favorite passages in all of Scripture says this, Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from rivalry. Think Jonathan could have seen David as a rival? Absolutely, right? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself. Like, let this be your mindset, your attitude, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be taken. But he made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Saul's grasping at David taking of David is simply one more way that he is trying to cling to power and invulnerability. Jonathan, though remember at least 20 years older than David, older than David, the, the, the rightful heir to Saul's kingdom in worldly terms, the beloved general of the army, I mean this is like a five-star general in control of a third of Saul's army, he doesn't grasp. He doesn't grasp, but he sees David as a brother not as a rival. As a brother, not as a rival. And he empties himself, makes himself nothing, and gives the kingdom to David. 
Jonathan is a king after God's own heart, who knows that the way up is down. But this is like the honeymoon phase of the relationship, right? I mean, it's, it, it's early. Everyone loves David at this point. Even Jonathan's sister, McCall, she loves David too. And David marries her. It's a weird kind of gross story. Not another day, maybe. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. Did you love your brother-in-law at first? You know, and then maybe later you're like, no, not so much. I don't know, right? Things change over time. Uh, their relationship hasn't been tested. So let's Let's move on to the next chapter. This is chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. The first time their relationship is tested. There's a board meeting going on, okay? And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants. You can imagine them gathered around the throne. And he says they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard this morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. So he hides David. And then he says, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, right? Saul swore, maybe like this going on, crossing his fingers a little bit, okay? Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, the good news. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So remember, we've already seen Jesus and the faithfulness of Jonathan, and the way that Jonathan refused to assume he's next. He refused to grab at power, but instead stripped himself, emptied himself, and became a servant to the younger David. But here we see Jonathan and David's friendship tested for the first time, right? Saul calls a meeting and says, we're going to kill David. That's what we're going to do. Now, what would be the politically savvy thing for Jonathan to do in this situation? Yes, sir, and kill David, right? He doesn't do that. Instead, Jonathan protects David by hiding him. Then he intercedes for David. And then he brings David back into the presence of his father. Here we see more of Jesus on display in Jonathan, right? We're told in Colossians that we are hidden. We are hidden with Jesus Christ in God. We're told in 1 Peter that we are guarded, we're protected by our chief shepherd. And we're told in Hebrews that Jesus is ever interceding for us, praying for us as we draw near to the presence of the Father. Jesus is our loyal Jonathan. Jesus is our faithful friend who takes us into his secret counsel. He's like the best protective older brother we can imagine. He sticks closer than a brother. His soul is knit to ours by the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us his robe. He gives us his armor. He gives us his sword, his power. He keeps you as the apple of his eye. He protects you. He lives to intercede for you and to bring you into the presence of the Father. That's good news, right? 
It's good news, but it gets even better. Chapter 20. What did Laren say? There's more. There's always more. Yeah, there we go. Chapter 20. Um, so Saul, shocker, does not keep his word, okay? Uh, he hurls another spear at David while David's playing music for him. And then he tries to kill him in the morning, but David's wife, McCall, like hides him and helps him escape. Like you thought your family had problems, okay? Um, so David tells Jonathan, look, dude, your dad's still trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no way. My dad tells me everything. He would not try and kill you again. He swore, you know, without telling me, right? This is the one problem with really good people is they can be a bit naive at times, okay? So he's like, no way. And David uh, invokes the covenant that they made together, right? And so this is like the true moment of testing for their friendship. For their relationship. This is, this is the moment where it's really, really tested. Because um, if Saul is lying here, after swearing he will not, like on the Lord, swearing he will not try and kill David again, I mean, now Jonathan knows, right? Jonathan knows that's not going to work again. He's going to have to decide once and for all where his loyalty lies. Is it with this, this little King David with no power or with Saul. And he knows probably either way it's going to end in his death. Like this is a very serious moment for Jonathan. And so David asks, like, how can I know that you won't betray me? How can I know? And so Jonathan calls him out to the field, and here's his response. We're going to read it, chapter 20, by the way, in the New Living Translation, because the ESV is so clunky. You have to read it like five times. We don't have time. So uh, New Living Translation, a little, little easier on the ears. So Jonathan says this, come out to the field with me. And they went out together. And then Jonathan told David, I promise by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow, or the next day at the latest, I will talk to my father and let you know at once how he, that Saul, feels about you. If he speaks favorably about you, I will let you know. But if he is angry and wants you killed, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And now he asks for David's promise. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, which is likely, treat my family with this same faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact, literally a covenant, again with David, saying, may the Lord destroy all of your enemies includes his dad. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as himself. So Jonathan doesn't break his original promise to David, does he? He doubles down. Jonathan promises on the Lord at the cost of his life. But even beyond that, Jonathan says, promise me if I die, you will take care of my family when you are king. And later, when Jonathan does die on Mount Gilboa defending Saul, David will later adopt Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth, and follow through on his promise. So remember, you know, Jonathan's not some young adrenaline junkie, not some mercenary. He's not risking his life for fun. It is loyalty that has led him there. Covenant loyalty that has led him to this moment. And his last act, this foresight, is to ensure that he has provided for his family. 
wow, like this is a real man, you know? More Jonathans, please. I, I want to I be like this guy. What a, what a vision. What a vision. And so this brings us to the climactic moment between Jonathan and Saul, 27 through 33. But when David's place, this is at the dinner table, was empty again the next day, Saul asked Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse been here for the meal, either today or yesterday, all innocently asking, you know? And Jonathan replied, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go, for we're having a family sacrifice. My brother demanded that I be there, so please let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore, he swore at him. Do you think, I don't know, that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you will never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. But why should he be put to death? Jonathan asked his father. What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, intending to kill him. So at last, Jonathan realized that his father really was determined to kill David. Oh, Jonathan, right? Wealthy, powerful, privileged Jonathan, loyal to a fault. The world is Jonathan's oyster. But what a fool in the eyes of the world. His loyalty to David has led him to have the spear thrown at him too. To have the same sort of reproach and shame and wrath that was directed at David. So he leaves, Jonathan leaves in grief and anger and he gets the message in this very creative way to David and they have this emotional farewell scene. And then we get these words at the end in verse 42. As Jonathan said to David, at last Jonathan said to David, go in peace. For we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left and Jonathan returned to the town. So this isn't the end of Jonathan's story. He will once again prove his loyalty by visiting David and strengthening David in David's lowest moment. He's hiding from Saul in the wilderness and Jonathan visits him and strengthens him. And in the end, Jonathan will die very obscurely. Like the enemy doesn't even realize it's him and his brothers that they killed at first. But they'll kill him on Mount Gilboa. And then Saul, to preserve what little honor and agency he has left, falls on his own sword and takes his own life. But as long as Jonathan lives from this point on, he will never be safe again. He'll never be safe again. And yet... He has peace. All this intrigue, all this palace intrigue, and yet he has peace. Why? Because he knows he is loyal to the true king. And he knows the true king is loyal to him. Right? He knows which king God will raise up in the end. It's his chosen king. And he loves that king as himself, and he knows that king loves him too. Peace comes from knowing you're right with the king, a friend of the king. The world needs more Jonathans, amen? Amen. Man, the world doesn't need more Sauls. 
Oh boy, the world does not need more guys who toot their own horn, okay? The world doesn't need more passive, insecure, blame-shifting people that just suck the life out of everyone around them until finally taking their own. Don't need more of that, do we? Don't need more of that. We don't need more confusing, lying flatterers who love you until you play the wrong note. Then the claws come out. Then they're throwing stuff at you. You know who throws stuff in anger? My two-year-old Banks, because it's developmentally appropriate, okay? (laughs) We don't need grown people doing that, okay? Throwing stuff when they're mad. We need maturity. We we need grown-ups, okay? We don't need anyone else clinging to their little kingdoms that they won't share, you know, until they start just using other for their own glory and pleasure and secrets. We don't need more of that. The natural thing to think, we need more Davids. We need more heroes. We need more rock stars, you know? I'm not so sure. I turned 35 in a couple weeks, um, and I'm told it's the beginning of early middle age, okay? (laughs) I'm okay. Heath turns 45 at the same time, so I'm all right. No, no, you're still middle-aged. Yeah, that's good. Um, But classically speaking, it's been considered the halfway point of life since people used to live till like 70. Um, So, you know, in the poets, like in Dante, you know, it's the opening line, like midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wood. He's 35, and that's when he discovered, oh man, if I'm going to go up to the paradise of heaven, I'm going to have to go down. I'm going to have to go down into hell. It's in scripture and in the poets, 35 is like this reflection point. It's this time that can, through humility, lead to a spiritual awakening. But for most well-off Americans, it leads to a Tesla or, you know, like a expensive car or an affair or something. So this Jonathan story became very personal for me because my whole life, I've kind of been more of a David. Okay? Confession time. Like, this chosen but complicated young man. Okay? Uh, I grew up at VCC. Most of you know that. I've always been the young guy here. Always. That's been like my identity here. The the promising upstart. People sometimes ask me, when are you going to go plant a church? You know? When are you going to go fly or whatever? And I've always had like potential. You know? And I think there's something about your 20s, unless you're like a remarkably healthy person, that in your 20s, you're trying to prove yourself you're, like, playing some kind of Game of Thrones in some ways, right? Being assigned the Jonathan Sermon was a little disappointing at first, because I'm like, oh, Jonathan, he's like this quiet background character, you know? What does he do? But when Heath pointed out how much older he would have been than David, like, maybe 30 years older, potentially, gave me totally new lenses, and I began realizing there have been a lot of Jonathans in my life. There are a lot of Jonathans, men and women, in my life. And I'm, I'm developing this sort of holy curiosity about the Jonathans in my life because they're very self-aware people, but not at all self-conscious people. And like when I'm with them, I feel safe, and they just seem to have a genuine curiosity about me rather than trying to get something out of me. And I think on my best days, I'm starting to be a little more interested in being a Jonathan than being a David, than being like one of the rock star preacher guys, okay? That got me into this game, you know, listening to podcasts. 
Anyway, uh, here's, what, here's what God told me this week. Unless you become Jonathan, you become Saul. Ooh, yeah, right? That's not from me, yeah. Mm, unless you become Jonathan, you become Saul. Unless you actively choose to imitate Jonathan's loyalty, to give your power away to a younger David in your life, becoming vulnerable in that loyalty, empowering someone specific at cost to yourself, you will become clingy Saul. Because that's who we are by nature. We need the Spirit to help us become something different. All of us are already mostly one or the other, but we're all breathing, we're all living. I want to um, read a passage to you uh, out of a, my favorite book of the last couple years called The Men We Need. Uh, here it is. Uh, it says what, was, what, what God is looking for. It says this chapter is incredibly important. It could be its own book. Maybe you'll write it someday. I'd buy it. Growing up in American church culture, I could never quite articulate this question, but I was always wrestling with it. What in the world does God actually want from me? It was confusing because the answer seemed like a long, strange list. I mean, I was pretty sure he wanted me to evangelize and share the good news, so that was it. That was what he wanted. But I was also pretty sure that he wanted me to read the Bible. So those two things, evangelism and Bible reading, were what I needed to concentrate on. Wait, prayer. That's important. So really three things. Also giving to the poor and that sort of thing. Right? So maybe I could combine that with being an activist for the right causes. So four things, really. Ooh, but also serving at a church as a volunteer in some capacity and giving money to the church. So there's a couple more. Plus joining a small group. Community is important. And singing worship songs with people and listening to sermons are both really big. So those two things are vital too. Don't forget those. Plus getting baptized and receiving communion and also attending Sunday school and extra services for Easter. I think we're around 13 things so far. So just concentrate on the big 13 things. <laughs> oh, wait, there's fasting. So <laughs> I think we're supposed to go without food. God wants that. So just concentrate on the 14 big things. Also confessing sin. So yeah, the 15 big things. Plus help out at a soup kitchen. <laughs> to my great relief, I have realized over time that God really wants one thing from us, and here it is, so gird yourself, loyalty. A believing, trusting loyalty. And it's loyalty to him specifically. Loyalty through everything, no matter what. Everything wrong in Saul flowed from the simple fact that he was not loyal to God. In the end, he was not reliable. He made promises he did not intend to keep. Every time he was caught, he blamed someone else. He could have repented and made way for God's chosen king, like Jonathan, but instead he chose to grasp and to cling. Jonathan expressed his loyalty to God by staying loyal to David at great cost to himself. And in the end, that was what made the difference. His faith was not an abstract idea, it was a concrete thing. It was expressed in loyalty to David. Loyal love to the end, the way Jesus loved his twelve. That's what counts. That's what's going to matter for you in the end, too. The question will not be, how much money did you make? What did you accomplish? Not even how many disciples did you make? Not, did you maximize your potential? 
The question will be, were you faithful? As Jake put it a few weeks ago, it's enough to be faithful. It's enough to be faithful in your season. So I want to end with this question. Who is your David? Who is your David? When you get over trying to be special, who is your special person? Who is, who is your David? Whether you're 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, 75, 85, 95, wherever you are, who are your Davids? Who's your special person? It's never going to be more than a few. It's never going to be more than a few. Who are you giving your kingdom away to? Who's getting your armor? Who's getting your sword and your belt and your robe? Or are you the kind of person who's going to die still thinking you had time and it could never happen to you? Don't be found clinging. Who are you giving your kingdom away to today? Like, pray, pray about that. Who is your David? Who do you already love? Who's your soul already knit to? Who are you sharing your stuff with? Who knows everything? Who knows everything? Who has your heart and can hurt you? Who, has you, who have you given the power to hurt you? Morgan Snyder, in his book, Becoming a King, he encourages us to name the people that will carry our casket now and make covenants with them. When they're at war, you're at war. Choose your David. The earlier we can name them, that's when the adventure starts. That's the better. That's when the adventure begins. But here's the good news to the King Saul in the pews this morning. It is never too late because Jesus Christ, the son of David, has chosen to be loyal to you. To you. Our love is finite and limited. His is not. Let's pray, take communion, and worship together. <clears throat> father, thank you that you are so much better of a father than King Saul. That you are not needy. That you are not passive but that you, out of an overflow of love, you sent your son, the truer and greater Jonathan, to take on human flesh, to bear the reproach and the shame of our sin, and to lift us up, to ascend into heaven and to bring us with you, to intercede at the right hand of the Father and to bring us safely home. We thank you, Jesus. Now may our worship bring joy to your heart. Amen.